Hey, good morning. Welcome to Jacksonville Presbyterian Church. My name is Dustin. I get to be the pastor here. And uh, if you're just joining us, we're going through John. And uh, for now until Easter, we're going through the section of John chapter 8 uh, through chapter 12. And the whole theme for this section that I want you to see is simply seeing Jesus. Uh, so with that in mind, uh, if you weren't here last week, uh, I would really encourage you to listen to last week's podcast. So there's a, there, we're in the middle of a conversation right now between Jesus and some people who are trying to ultimately kill him. So we're kind of jumping sort of uh, mid-conversation in right now. So to get the broader context, I'd love for you to listen to last week's sermon to get an idea because there's a lot of important things going on in John chapter 8 that are worth your consideration. Uh, but today we're going to be looking sort of just verse by verse through John 8, 48 through 59. Uh, so with that in mind, Christian, let's hear Jesus in the middle of this conversation with his opposition. Let's start in verse 48 through 59. The Jews answered him, that's Jesus, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he's the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he'll never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he'll never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he's our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will endure forever. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Would you be seated and keep that Bible open in front of you as we pray? Uh, Holy Spirit, uh, we stand on holy ground in your presence. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would give us eyes to see Jesus through the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name we pray, to the glory of God the Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, well, as we're going through John chapter 8, like I said, I would love for you to sort of look at some past uh, sermons just uh, to get an idea of what's going on in this conversation. There's all kind of incredible things that Jesus has said so far in this conversation. Uh, he's told these people that they need to be set free and that if the Son sets you free, then you'll be free indeed. And uh, the opposition here, the Jewish leaders, which is what Jews refers to, it doesn't mention all Jews, it's specific to the religious leaders, the Judeans. And they say, buddy, who are you to set anybody free? Who do you think you are? Who do you make yourself out to be? And so just when you think Jesus is going to sort of, you know, tone it down a little bit, uh, he ratchets it up even, you know, beyond level 10. It's like he's taking it to level 11, if there was at a level 11 on the dial, right? He takes it so far. 
Um, and so what I want you to do, friends, in this passage, uh, you know, just these 11 verses, I wa- is I want to walk you through these verses and give you some ways in which these verses help you see who Jesus really is. Um, a lot of people are going to tell you who they think Jesus is or who maybe they want Jesus to be. It's amazing to me when I listen to people talk about Jesus, how often Jesus sounds and votes and talks and thinks just like they do. Um, you know, it's been said that, you know, God made us in his image, but we have been returning the favor ever since, right? It's easy to make Jesus after our own image. Um, It's amazing how often, though, we need to see what Jesus says about himself to really make up our minds about who he is. And I I make that suggestion to you, um, not necessarily to those of you who are convinced uh, that Jesus is the Messiah, but to anybody who's trying to figure Jesus out. Um, The most important thing to do is to try to figure out who Jesus sees himself to be. Um, Who does actually, you know, what does Jesus actually think he's up to? What is Jesus's mission? Well, you and I, can we can come up with all these conspiracy theories, but what does Jesus actually say his mission is? What does he see himself actually accomplishing and doing? And then how does that explain to us all these things that he's saying? So with that in mind, let's dive in right there in verse 48. So look with me at verse 48, and we'll just go sort of verse by verse this morning. Uh, Verse 48, right there in your lap, it says, The Jews answered him, that's the religious leaders, not all Jews, because remember, Jesus is Jewish, as is John the author. The religious leaders answered him, Aren't we right in saying that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? And right off the bat, if you ever have to start a question with, Aren't I right? Typically, you're not right, actually. Or if you're going to say it, you're going to ruin the relationship. I mean, how many husbands have ruined date night with, aren't I right in saying something, you know, anyone? You never want to say, aren't I right? Usually, that's a very condescending way to speak to somebody, right? I mean, it's basically like, aren't I right in saying you're an idiot? I mean, that's kind of sort of how it feels, right? That's just an aside. You know, that's just advice to husbands. Don't start off with a question to your wife. Aren't I right in saying that dress looks better on you in that way? You know, you you don't want to say that, right? Well, what they're getting at is they're saying, come on, Jesus, be reasonable. Aren't we right in saying that you're a Samaritan and you have a demon? And what's fascinating about that sentence right there in verse 48 is um, Jesus gets accused of being demon-possessed in other verses. Um, I mean, that's a very offensive thing to say. You know, if someone says, you're so crazy, it's like a demon has gotten control of you. That's an offensive thing to say. But actually, this is the only verse in the New Testament where anyone ever calls Jesus a Samaritan. They say, you are a Samaritan. And actually, what I would suggest to you is that that is actually more offensive, if you can imagine it. That is more of an offensive thing to say to Jesus than saying he's demon-possessed. Um, but once you know what the context is behind Samaritans, you may actually realize demon-possessed, you know, he could overlook that easily, right? But the Samaritan thing, buddy, what in the world is going through their mind? Now, the reason I asked for you to have a, a copy of God's printed word out in front of you is because to understand the full context and why it's so offensive for these people to call Jesus a Samaritan, you've got to know the basic story of the Old Testament. And uh, so if you would, you know, maybe keep your finger on John chapter 8, and if you would, flip to page 381 in your blue Bible, if you've got a hardback, or turn to 2 Kings 17. I want everybody to do that. I know you're looking around. We're all doing it together. See, I'm doing it as well. Go to 2 Kings chapter 17. And to understand why it would be offensive to be compared to a Samaritan, 
you need to learn the history of the people of Samaria. You know, are Samaritans good guys? Are they generous? Are they a religious group of people? Well, you know, I know that you, maybe you remember, there's a, a famous parable, the parable of the good Samaritan, right? And a lot of ministries are called good Samaritan ministries. Well, what is a Samaritan? Is that like a compliment? <laughs> uh, no, it is not a compliment, or they certainly don't mean it as one. So what goes on in the story of the Old Testament? I'm not going to give you a whole overview of the Old Testament, but it is good to know the basic story of the Old Testament, which will make sense of the New Testament. And so to understand the New Testament, you've got to read the Old Testament. And to understand the Old Testament, you've got to be reading the New Testament, right? They're, they're intimately linked to one another, right? So the story of the Old Testament is essentially that God calls a man named Abraham and he says, Abraham, I'm going to make of you a great nation. And that great nation turns into the state of Israel. And they have great kings like David and Solomon. Until, unfortunately, Solomon's son takes over. And the kingdom splits into two. Okay? This is where you got to keep your thinking hat on. So around the 700s, the kingdom is split into two. Okay? And there are ten northern tribes. They call themselves the land of Israel. And then the southern, smaller kingdom is called the land of Judah. So they're, they're, both of them are, are, are referenced all throughout the Old Testament. Some prophets talk to the northern tribe. Some talk to the southern tribe. But there's a split right down the middle between the two kingdoms. And this is where it gets, starts to be important for our passage. In 722 BC, 722 BC, 700 years before Jesus walked around the earth, 722 BC, the northern kingdom gets exiled to Assyria. Boo, boo the Assyrians, right? Boo the bad guys. The Assyrians come and they take the majority of the Israelites living in northern Israel and they famously put rings in their noses like this. You know, they'd pierce a ring through their nose and they'd put a chain through all the rings of all of us and then they would drag us into Samaria. You can go look at Assyrian reliefs of the ancient world and see what they would do to exiles. It was terrible. And, you know, Assyrians were famous for making wooden spikes and then they'd impale people on the spikes. And it'd be a demonstration of if you mess with Assyria, what are you going to do about it? What's your God going to do about it? We're bigger and badder than anybody, right? So the Assyrians come along and they take over those exiles and they get brought. So the 10 tribes is decimated. There's hardly anybody left. And so let's look at what Assyria does next in northern Israel, in the land of, quote-unquote, Samaria. This is 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 24. And we'll just look at a few verses. We're not going to read this whole thing. And the king of Assyria, boo, right? Boo that guy. He's a jerk face. And the king of Assyria brought people, okay? The king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, Sepharvaim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. And at the beginning of their dwelling there, these people did not fear the Lord. And then go down to verse 29. Just the next paragraph. So there are all these people from all these different nations who have been brought into the land of Israel by the king of Assyria. And look at verse 29. But every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the shrines of the high places as the Samaritans had made. Every nation in the cities in which they lived. The men of Babylon made Sukkoth, Benoth. The men of Kuth made Nergal. The men of Hamath made Ashima. 
The Avites made Nibhaz and Tartak, and the Sepharvites burned their children in the fire to Adram Melech and Anam Melech, the gods of the Sepharvaim. They also feared the Lord, I guess you could say, and appointed from among themselves all sorts of people, not Levites, all sorts of people as priests of the high places who sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high places. So they feared the Lord, but also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away. So by the time Jesus is alive, 700 years after that, um, the land of Samaria was seen um, as racially impure because it was some Jewish people and then it's a bunch of Gentiles. So, there, it was, it, so it's, there's a racial connotation. Then there is a religious connotation because these are the kinds of people who would perform child sacrifice in the land of Israel as, as, as egregious to God. Um, he talks about child sacrifice in Jeremiah, and he says, uh, people are doing evil that did not even enter into my mind that they would do, right? So when the Jews, these religious leaders, say, Jesus, you're a Samaritan, not only are they saying you worship false gods and you're pretty heinous, they're also making a racial slur against him. And then also, if you remember from last week and last week's sermon, they're again making some sort of snide, sideways comment about Jesus's parentage. You know, there's some weird story about a virgin birth. What's up with that? They say, where is your dad? And they say, we know who our father is. Since the earliest times and the 200s, Christian commentators have pointed out that really what they're doing is they're questioning uh, Jesus's background. You're probably a Samaritan. So all that to say, the reason I belabor that point is, is just simply, one, this is the only time Jesus ever called a Samaritan, and I want you to feel the weight of how offensive that would have been to any self-respecting Jew. But what I want you to focus on is how this shows us who Jesus is. Look, look at verse 49. How does Jesus answer that incredibly offensive saying? Jesus answered, I don't have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. <laughs> oh my goodness. I mean, imagine if someone questioned your mom's integrity, called you a racial slur, and then said you were demon-possessed. Remember when I said demon possession feels kind of mild now compared to what they were saying? I mean, imagine that. And listen to how Jesus responds. He goes, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. I mean, friends, if you can see anything in Jesus, I want you to see the incredible patience that Jesus has with people. I mean, the incredible patience. Why is Jesus still talking to these people? I mean, if this were me or maybe you, I would probably have turned around and given them a hand gesture and all kind of wonderful things that you can use your imagination to fill in. I mean, could you imagine actually hearing somebody say that to you in front of other people? I mean, talk about a slap in the face. But Jesus is also quick to turn the other cheek. And what Jesus does is he shows them incredible patience. He says, I don't have a demon. I honor my father and you dishonor me. And then he goes on and he says, look, what is my goal, <laughs> right? I don't seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he's the judge. See, what we need to see, uh, Jesus, he's trusting in God. He's going to vindicate him and prove him right. We need to see simply just these two things. One, the incredible patience of Jesus. 
I mean, anyone ever feel like God's gotten tired of you? You know what I mean? Anyone ever be like, God's probably just sick of me at this point. Like I just keep sinning and I keep being lazy and I keep doing wrong. Isn't Jesus just so sick of me? Well, you've never called him a Samaritan, have you? Right? So at least you're not that bad, right? If he has patience for these people, Christian, he has patience for you. He's got all the patience in the world, right? He loves you. So rest in God's patience. But also what I want you to realize is that Jesus is not a Samaritan, but this is an important part. Jesus is not a Samaritan. He's Jewish. He's not a Samaritan, but he is for Samaritans. Let me say that again. Jesus is not a Samaritan. He is fully Jewish, but he is for Samaritans. In fact, he is for all peoples, whether they are Sephirvites or they are Babylonians or whether they are Samaritans or they are Oregonians. Jesus is, there, there's some wretched people out here. Kind of, yeah, we need some saving, right? Jesus is for all people. And uh, this isn't the only time Samaritans pop up in the Gospel of John. When you're reading this book, you may remember in John chapter 4, uh, when Megan Hackman preached here, she preached on John chapter 4. And the first person that Jesus ever tells that he is the Jewish Messiah, he is the God of Israel's Messiah, is a Samaritan woman who had been married five times and was living with a man she wasn't married to. And you know what he says to her? He says, I am the one you're talking to. See, Jesus isn't a Samaritan, but he is for Samaritans. You know, it's funny, um, you know, if you read the other Gospels, uh, I, I, I don't know, you, maybe you don't think this is funny. I think this is really funny. In the other Gospels, you sometimes learn things about the disciples that they don't talk about themselves doing. So in Luke, we learn of this story in, in Luke chapter 9, where Jesus tries to go into Samaria. And so he sends some people and he says, anybody want to let us you know, stay with them while we come to Samaria? Well, the problem is, is the Samaritans in Luke 9, they say, no thanks, don't bother coming to Samaria because we don't want you to come. And John and his brother James, the guy who wrote this gospel, you know what they do? They turn to Jesus and they say, Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and burn that village alive? <laughs> and Jesus says, no, you're misunderstanding my mission, right? <laughs> John doesn't tell that story in his gospel. He edits that one out. I think that's hilarious, you know. He's like, sorry, Samaritans, when I tried to kill you, you know. I love that he doesn't mention this, but I want you to see the tension, right? No one that was Jewish seemed to like Samaritans, but Jesus sees them as people whom God loves and who should be brought into the family of God. And when he talks to that woman at the well, um, and he tells her he's the Jewish Messiah, it's so important to listen to what Jesus says. Because when he talks to her in John chapter 4, this Samaritan woman, you may think that he sort of, you know, sounds like a postmodern American where he goes something like, well, you're a Samaritan. You just need to be sincere in your Samaritan beliefs. And I'm Jewish. I just need to be sincere in my beliefs. And it's all going to work out okay. But that's not at all what he says to the woman in Samaria. What he says to the Samaritan woman when she tries to have a religious debate about which religion is right, he says, you're right in saying that salvation is from the Jews. 
It is. There's one God, the God of Israel, and you are right. And salvation will come from them. And I am the Jewish Messiah. I am he. I am the Christ. But there will come a day that all people who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And all people, no matter where they are in this world, will worship the true God of the Bible. They will worship, as he says in John 4, in spirit and in truth. So on one hand, Jesus is very narrow. He believes that God is doing something unique for all peoples in himself. The God of Israel has sent him to be the Messiah, the only Messiah for all peoples. So there's a narrowing that he is the only way of salvation, but it's also broad because it is for all peoples, even Samaritans. Are you starting to see who Jesus sees himself to be? He's not a Samaritan, but he's for them. Just like he's not from Oregon, but he's for us as well. And he's incredibly patient. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. How, you know, how, what more do we need to see out of Jesus in this passage? Well, if you look right there, he says, you know, I don't, I don't have a demon, uh, verse 49, but I honor my father, you dishonor me. Yet in verse 50, I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he's the judge. So Jesus says, I'm not going to be distracted by my mission because you're, you know, you're making fun of me and you're reviling me, but I'm not going to revile you in return because my goal is not to just, you know, buff up my ego, right? Look at verse 50, he's not trying to say he's an egomaniac. He says, I don't seek my own glory. You know, the irony, the irony of who Jesus is, right, is he doesn't seek his own glory because he is the God who created all things and he has humbled himself to become a person. And Philippians says he has humbled himself to becoming the form of a servant and he stoops down and he forgives his enemies and he loves them. And then he dies for his enemy. I mean, the irony, they're saying, Jesus, who do you make yourself out to be? If anything, Jesus has emptied himself of everything. He has humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. Jesus hasn't lifted himself up. Instead, he's humbled himself for his enemies, people like you and me. So what is it that Jesus sees then as his mission? What do we need to see? Well, it's right there in verse 51. This is Jesus's mission. I mean, you get all kind of pet theories as to what Jesus is up to, but he will tell you explicitly, if you have eyes to see it, what he has come to do. Look at verse 51. He says, truly, truly, which means for real, listen to what I'm saying. In Greek, he would say, amen, 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 amen. What I'm about to say is incredibly important. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, He'll never see death. I mean, who in the world does Jesus think he is to say that he can save us from death itself? But friends, this is what Jesus sees himself accomplishing. You know, Jesus has already said in John 6, my will is not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. He's not on an ego trip. He's not trying to make much of himself. He sees him as obeying God the Father who has called him to die on a cross to make his enemies his brothers and sisters. And Jesus says, I've come so that you never have to see death again because I will taste death for you. 
You see, Jesus' mission is to save us from our greatest enemy. Um, Not only are we going to die in this world, we're also going to die in our sins unless God forgives us. You know, Scripture is clear in the Old Testament and the New Testament. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. Um, The wages of sin is death, both in this life and the life to come. And so what Jesus has come to do is to defeat death itself by dying on our behalf and coming to life again so that we would share in his resurrection life forever. So Jesus will go on and say crazy things like, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And I am the resurrection and the life. If anyone believes in me, though he die in this life, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? It's John 11. You see, Jesus sees himself as defeating our our greatest enemy of death. You know, as Francis Bacon, who famously said, men fear death as children fear to go in the dark. You know, it's funny, you know, if you think about how our culture now is thinking about death, um, we're just in a season of denial. Um, I mean, when was the last time you went to a church with a cemetery? You know, that's too much of a downer. Put a playground there. Or when was the last time you went to a funeral? It's probably been years. You may have gone to celebrations of life. You may have gone to a local bar and celebrated someone's life. But a funeral, that's just too dark and sad. Uh, we, We don't know what to do with death, do we? Well, what Jesus says right there in verse 51, if you have eyes to see it, Christian, is he says an audacious thing. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, believes in me, follows me, he will never, never see death. In Greek, he says the word never twice. He says, no, never, never, ever, never, never will you see death. See, this is Jesus's mission, is to save us all. And how do people respond to that pretty audacious claim? If we look at verse 52, the Jews said to him, amen, how do we give our lives to you? Is that what they say? No, in verse 52, they say, now we know you're crazy. Now we know you have a demon. Who are you to offer me eternal life? You are so nuts. And then for for them, the greatest argument they can make is they say, Abraham, the original Jewish guy, the father of the nation of Israel, the guy that we all descend from, as great as Abraham was, Abraham still died. So who are you, buddy? And by the way, so did all of the Old Testament prophets of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. All of those guys died. And who do you think you are that you're going to say that you have the power over death itself, buddy? You are crazy. Look at verse 53. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? And again, Jesus responds in verse 54. If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. I'm not on an ego trip. I'm not here to make much of myself. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, he's our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I don't know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. So what do we see in Jesus in those verses? 
Well, the first thing you need to realize is um, Jesus is the only morally perfect person we've ever known. And if you know people of really high integrity, people that you really respect, you may sometimes realize that they're more bold than people like you and me are. (laughs) They are more willing to say what they really believe. And you may be like, hey, pump the brakes. Something bad's about to happen if you keep saying that. But a person of high integrity knows that they speak the truth and they're, they're more bold than normal people are. And so is Jesus. And Jesus can say things like, you claim to know the God of the Bible, but you don't. You claim he's your God, but you don't know him. I know him. And if I denied that I knew him, I'd be a liar like you. (laughs) Pretty bold, right? And Jesus' argument, what's going through Jesus' mind, the reason he can talk like that, is not because he's trying to put anybody down or, you know, um, be disrespectful. What he's saying is he's saying, if you knew the Bible, if you really knew God, you would know who I am. You would know who I am. Because I know God and I've been sent from him. So you can claim all of this religion, but if you don't see me, you don't know God. So what do we see about Jesus in this passage? First, he affirms that the only true God is the God of the Bible. That's who Jesus believes in. He is a faithful Jew. But at the same time, Jesus also believes that if you want to know God, you have to bow the knee to Jesus. Even somebody steeped in the Old Testament scriptures, like these religious leaders were, even somebody who had grown up around religion, if they don't see and believe in Jesus, they don't really know God. I mean, how in the world can Jesus say this, right? And, you know, the argument about Abraham, it just keeps going, right? I mean, who in the world do you think you are? Well, what does Jesus say in regards to this question about, is Jesus better than Abraham? Look at verse 56. Jesus says, yeah, your father Abraham, you know, who we all descended from, all all of us as Jews in this passage, right? Your father Abraham, though, rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and he was glad. (laughs) And what's so shocking about that sentence is what they're saying is the greatest patriarch of all time, Abraham. Abraham, whom we're all the descendants of. Are you saying you're better than Abraham? Come on, buddy, get real. And what does Jesus say? He says, absolutely, I am saying that. That's absolutely what I'm saying. I am. I am. I am better than Abraham. And Abraham, I, I don't hope in Abraham. Abraham hopes in me. <laughs> That's what he's saying. My hope in my salvation is not that I'm a descendant of Abraham. Abraham's hope for his salvation is in me. How in the world can Jesus say that? Are you starting to get a sense for why they want to kill Jesus? Again, if you you keep a finger in John chapter 8, flip with me real fast at the original story of Abraham. If you go to page 10, as early as you can almost in your Bible, page 10 in your Bible, you need to know the story of Abraham. He's so important to the Bible. He's the father of the whole nation of Israel, right? So the whole Old Testament is based around the story of his descendants. He's the father of the land of Israel, right? Abraham. Well, to understand why Abraham is so important and why they're appealing to him as the most important guy is because Abraham gets sort of the chartering document. It's like the constitution of the land of Israel, basically, right? The most important thing 
that God ever tells Abraham are in these verses. This is why God created the land of Israel and the people of Israel is for this reason. Look at verse Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, that's Abraham, go from your family and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I'll show you. And I will make of you a great nation, the nation of Israel. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will what? Be a blessing. So that you will be a blessing. Not only will Israel be blessed, but they will turn around and bless others. And look at verse three. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You see, in Genesis 12, what God establishes is that Abraham's family will turn into a great nation. And one day, that great nation will bless all the people groups, all of the families of the earth, all the Sephirvites, all the Babylonians, all of the Assyrians. You can even read it in the Old Testament, even in Isaiah 18 and 19. God prophesies a day in which the Babylonians and the Assyrians will come and they will worship the true God. You see, even from Genesis 12, God's vision is that one Israelite, some descendant of Abraham, will one day save all of the families, all the people groups of the earth. So when Jesus is saying, Abraham looked forward to my day, He's saying, I'm the fulfillment of Genesis 12. I'm the fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament. I'm the point of the promise in Genesis 12. I have come to bring salvation to the families of the earth, even to the Samaritans and the Oregonians. And they say, buddy, you are so crazy. Look at verse 57. So the Jews said to Jesus, you're not even 50. And you've seen, oh, you've had this conversation with Abraham, have you? Did you have that conversation? That's kind of funny because it's like, you know, 1,500 years ago and you're not even 50. I don't know if Jesus looks old, you know, because he was only in his 30s. You know, maybe the, the wear and tear of ministry, you know, caused premature graying or something. But I don't know why they, they say you're not even 50. It could just, it probably just means you're not even old yet, buddy. Like, who are you to like tell us anything? But if, if, you, think I'm, if you think I'm pushing it too far, you know, this whole like Jesus is better than Abraham thing. Well, listen to what Jesus says next. They say, oh, have you, have you talked to Abraham? Have you, oh, did you, do you know him? How can you talk about that? You're not even 50, buddy. Look at verse 58. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, amen, amen. Before Abraham was, I am. It's one of the most clear moments in the entire New Testament where Jesus claims that he's not just human. He's not just the Messiah. He is God himself come in human form. If you know the Old Testament, you'll know that in places like Exodus 3 and Isaiah 43, God will reveal himself by a name, I am that I am. And in Exodus 3, he looks at Moses and he says, you are here to set the Israelites free. And one day you'll take them to the promised land and they'll make a great nation and then they'll be that blessing. And Moses says, they're not going to believe a word I say. Who's, who am I supposed to say sent me? And what does God say? He says, tell them I am sent you. 
So when Jesus looks at these religious leaders and he says, before Abraham even was born, I am. What he's taking on is a divine name. He's saying, I am God. And I was never created. I am the creator. I was not made. I am the maker. I was not created. I am the creator. In fact, this is exactly what John has been teaching all along. The very first sentence out of John's mouth in this gospel is what? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. In John 20, at the end of the story, when they see Jesus back from the dead, Thomas, doubting Thomas, looks at the nail scars in Jesus' hands and he shouts out, My Lord and my God. Are you seeing who Jesus claims to be? This is why he can be so bold. This is why he can say, You have to bow the knee to me. This is why you have to come to me. I alone have the power over death, because he's God himself, come to save us all. And that's exactly what they understand him to be saying. Look at verse 59. They pick up stones to kill him. And the reason they do that is is because in Leviticus 24, uh, Leviticus says, if anybody commits blasphemy, you're to stone him. Um, So the claim that he's God is not lost on them. That's exactly what he's saying, and that's exactly what they think he's saying. But echoing Ezekiel 10 Jesus leaves the temple. So what are we supposed to see in all of this story? Pretty, it's a pretty profound passage, wouldn't you say? Pretty profound. What are we supposed to see? Well, friends, I hope you see uh, Jesus' love for all people, even Samaritans, and even these people in this story who are incredibly offensive to him. Do you see his loving patience with people? I mean, he's even offering eternal life to these people in this story. Do you see Jesus' love for all people? Do you see that Jesus sees himself as faithful to the God of the Bible? Um, He's not a religious pluralist. It's not all going to work out in the end. What he says is, I am the hope of the world. I am the faithful interpreter of God's word. Uh, I hope you see that um, he was promised thousands of years ago. Jesus was promised at least as early as Genesis 12. If you don't believe me, just read the book of Galatians. It makes that explicit. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise of Abraham. He is the Israelite who is going to save us all. Um, I hope you see that his mission was to offer salvation. And friends, let me just close with this. Friends, if all of this is true, I mean, if Jesus really is who he says he is, um, I think the, and you believe that, if you really believe that, there's only one real application Um, that I think you need to make from this passage. And it's right there in verse 51. Friends, you never, ever, ever need to be afraid of death again. You will never, never see death. Uh, You may die in this life, but your life will continue for eternity. Friends, that's an invitation to see who Jesus says he is. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would give us eyes to see Jesus, um, hearts that could believe his words, that we would never, ever see death. Lord, we pray for those of us who are afraid right now of diagnoses and struggles. Lord, would you remove from them the fear of death? Lord, help us to see Jesus and give all of our lives to him who gave himself for us. Amen.